On behalf of Independent Research Forum, a warm welcome from us all to this IRF podcast. I'm Jamie Stewart, and with me today is Michael Howell from Cross Border Capital. Our object for this podcast is to get a better understanding of what the latest liquidity data is saying and how one can deploy it to make money from macro investing. The Independent Research Forum represents and presents an extensive range of the best independent research providers from around the world, reflecting both macro and micro disciplines and philosophies. Some are stock pickers, some are sector specific, others country specific, many global and all investment focused by way of priority objective. I'm very pleased that we are joined today by Michael Howell, the founder and CEO of Cross Border Capital. Cross Border Capital is a London-based independent investment advisory firm and alternative data provider, which extends a different perspective to analyzing capital markets and economies, notably by focusing on international capital and domestic liquidity aspects. Michael developed the quantitative liquidity research methodology for which Cross Border is renowned while he was research director at Salomon Brothers. He was subsequently appointed head of research at Bering Securities and was top-ranked emerging markets strategist by institutional investors for three years prior to moving to set up cross-border capital. Michael, a warm welcome. Hi, good morning. First, let's begin with your brief introduction to the services that cross-border capital provides. Delighted, therefore, to introduce your big liquidity story. Thanks, Jamie. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, very exciting opportunity. Let me say a few words about what liquidity is, why it's important, and why this is the big liquidity story. Uh, 2020 has been all about liquidity. Uh, if we think of the response to the COVID crisis, uh, central banks and policymakers uh, essentially poured huge amounts of liquidity into markets, and we've all seen the results. Uh, effectively, markets have responded very, very positively to all this cash. What we do at cross-border capital is actually to monitor, quantitative sense, these flows of liquidity. And what we look at in particular is the flows that come first from the central bank, uh, in other words, central bank balance sheet uh, uh, manipulation and expansion. Secondly, we look at what the private sector is doing with that cash. So we're looking at things like uh, traditional banking, we look at shadow banking, we look at the development of money markets, we look at the role of collateral in markets in terms of, uh, of a source of, uh, of credit generation. And then also we look at cross-border flows. Cross-border flows tend to be particularly important when one's looking at currency, potential currency movements, purchase and sale of safe assets, and in particular, what happens to emerging markets. So we cover all these dimensions quantitatively and in terms of narrative. Our scope is very wide. We cover 80 countries worldwide. And uh, as you uh, foreshadowed, we've been doing this for a long time. Cross-border capital has been around for uh, now almost 25 years. It's a remarkable introduction there, Michael, because it covers an, <laughs> an enormous space and an enormous amount of liquidity and concepts all in one go. Um, it'll be fascinating to know what you reckon is the order of priority in terms of what you're focusing on and what affects people's investment strategies at the moment, and, and of course, may do in the future. Let, let me say a little bit about the origins, because I think that's that's a key thing to understanding it. Um, I got first turned on to looking at liquidity when I was working at Salomon Brothers uh, in the mid to late 1980s. And Salomon Brothers, if people don't know, was 
then the uh, world's biggest uh, trading organization in terms of looking at fixed income and forex markets, and it was uh, progressively getting into equities. It was the first firm that seriously did block trading, uh, for example, in equities. And this is really a precursor to you know, what we now think of as macro investing and looking at uh, you know, major shifts of uh, either uh, futures or ETF purchases. Um, essentially, Salomon Brothers' view was that in order to understand uh, what markets are doing, you need to understand money flows. You need to essentially watch the money, follow the money, and then you had a very good clue as to how markets would, would operate. That was very much their trading philosophy. And much of the firm's research expertise was focused on tracking these particular liquidity flows globally. And that's really what I took up. The original focus of Salomon Brothers was clearly the US. That's the origins of the firm. Um, and what I did was to uh, progressively extend that frontier into other G10 markets. And then when I moved to bearings to do that for emerging markets too. The role of liquidity is, is paramount. It was a key aspect in Salomon Brothers understanding how to uh, run their proprietary trading books. Uh, because that flow gave a lot of color as to the likely direction of markets and particularly fixed income markets. In terms of how liquidity moves through the financial system, one has to think about a sort of sequential flow. And the way that we always understand it is to think of, if you like, uh, the origins of liquidity coming out of central banks. Uh, that money tends to affect fixed income markets and forex markets initially. So they would tend to respond within about three months of a liquidity shock. Uh, then that money tends to migrate through the financial system, uh, affecting banks, shadow banks, etc. And as it starts to spill out more widely, uh, it enables or facilitates greater risk taking. And as that risk taking starts to evolve, then equity markets, corporate debt markets, uh, real estate markets, commodity markets tend to be inflated by liquidity. And then ultimately, that money will then spill out into the real economies uh, and drive real economies, probably something of the order of 15 to 18 months later from the original surge. Now, if we then come down to what is critical, what are the things that we really look at? Uh, I think you can summarize those in terms of three different aspects. And those, re those refer to the specific asset classes that we watch. So, for example, if you look at the flow of liquidity that is emanating in the financial system, the aggregate flow, that tends to be, has most impact on fixed income markets. And specifically what happens is that when liquidity is injected into a financial system, default ro uh, rates or systemic risk tends to drop. And in that environment, investors will move away from safe assets like government bonds uh, and they'll start to migrate into other asset classes. As they do that, term premia on the fixed income markets tend to widen out, and the yield curve steepens, uh, and that is associated with rising yields. So what you tend to find initially is that liquidity increases uh, or liquidity decreases initially have their effect on term premia and the steepness or the flatness, respectively, of the yield curve. The second thing that we look at is then the mix of liquidity. And that mix can take us into whether the central bank is the dominant feature, whether cross-border flows are dominant, or whether private sector liquidity is dominant. And the particular mix is critical for understanding Forex markets. For example, if you see uh, a very active Federal Reserve 
uh, in other words, pumping in lots of cash, it's quite likely that the dollar will become a weak currency. If there is tremendous foreign demand for US safe assets, then the dollar will likely pick up. And equally, if the US private sector is generating lots of cash, what you then also tend to find is that uh, the dollar will be strong. So the mix of liquidity is critical to understanding Forex markets, and that example extends out to other currencies as well. And then if we turn to equity markets, the big, I suppose, a differentiating factor between equities and the other markets like fixed income and Forex markets is that equities have a much, much bigger emotional component in them. So sentiment is really critical. And one of the things we use to evaluate equity markets is to look at the positioning investors in markets. So one of the key pieces of information we gather on a monthly basis is to see the asset allocation, the prevailing asset allocation of investors in markets. And that is, for example, looking at their, the amount of cash, the amount of fixed income, the amount of equity they hold. Now, what tends to work very well in equity investing is to be a contrarian. And what you see are very, very big mood swings very often in equity markets. Classic example was uh, March, April of 2020, when in particular, investors in Wall Street uh, became hugely risk averse to a degree that we've never seen before. They sold equities very aggressively and they built up cash. On our system, uh, those th the thresholds were, were uh, broken to such an extent that there was a whopping great buy opportunity signaled for Wall Street uh, around the middle of April. And consequently, as we've now seen, uh, a huge elevation in stock prices ever since. Now, we think that's going to keep going for the simple reason that if you look at very simple ratios between equity holdings, the value of all equity holdings, and the volume of cash or liquidity in markets, that is still at a relatively low level. So to summarize, the flow of liquidity is all about fixed income. The mix of liquidity is about looking at Forex markets and the positioning of liquidity. In other words, the equity to liquidity uh, ratio, if you like, uh, is really what drives the equity market. Listening to every syllable of what you're saying, Mike, there are a couple of things which which come up in what you're saying and is underlying your thinking, I think, but um, I don't be sound presumptuous by saying that. One is the, the question as to what the top-down new balance between assets and sovereign debt and so on is going to do to the picture which you're describing as far as the foreground is concerned. It'd be very interesting to know whether you've got a particular view on that because that's going to go on changing yet as, as debt increases. The second thing is the very interesting fact that emerging markets, if one looks at them individually or as a group, appear to be a very good risk offsetting, risk rebalancing procedure at the moment as far as portfolio construction is concerned. So it'd be Excellent to know whether you've um, whether you've got particular thoughts you might like to go into on those two points. Yes, indeed. I mean, there are, there are two separate themes here. I mean, we, let me deal with the emerging market question first of all. Emerging markets are priced at the margin. They tend to be uh, they tend to be responsive to strong inflows of liquidity. And in particular, what you find is that cross border flows are really the the key driver of emerging markets. Now that often coincides with changes in currency values. But we, we very much let the data speak here. And it's very important to look at what's happening to the capital flow picture. Now, I think there are, there are two or three things that one can, uh, one can cite as being important here. One is that if you go back to the March-April period, 
one of the things that was uh, very prominent in the media were commentators that I would say wrongly uh, were suggesting that there were huge outflows of capital from emerging markets. Now, our data didn't show that. Uh, the official data that subsequently been published confirms our, our statement at the time to say there was actually very little capital leaving uh, emerging markets as a whole. Uh, admittedly, some countries like Brazil saw large outflows since the COVID crisis of about 50 billion, but others like India have seen very big inflows coming back in uh, since that time. So looking at the money flow is, is, is very important. The, the other thing I think to say is to, in terms of what drives emerging markets, is to think of both the dollar and what's happening in China. And those are the other two dimensions that I think are, are very critical in terms of, uh, of a picture for emerging market prospects. In terms of the dollar, we think the dollar is progressively weakening. We use models, as I said, which look at the mix of liquidity, and that mix is deteriorating. Uh, what you saw in the last five years has been a tremendous appetite for U.S. securities, uh, largely for a number of reasons. But I would say the paramount reason is that in the rest of the world economy, there has been an excess demand for safe assets. And the U.S. has been uniquely one of the few uh, major economies that has been able to supply those. And therefore, there's been big demand for dollars. And that has come in part and parcel of things like Basel III regulations of banks. And the fact that if you look at the European banking sector, not only does it need uh, more and more safe assets, but actually the Europeans don't supply them themselves simply because the supply of funds has dried up significantly, had done in the last five years. So that's one of the reasons that the dollar has been strong and why that's now fading because of the big issuance that we're seeing uh, in fiscal authorities worldwide. There are more safe assets around. There's no need to buy dollars. And then you've got a deteriorating fiscal situation in the US as well. But the other factor, increasingly becoming a big factor, is China. And China is really a key driver of emerging markets, simply because its footprint is so big. It is the elephant in the room when it comes to these economies. And what you're seeing is more and more evidence that supply chains regionally within the emerging market world are closely tied up with the Chinese economy. Now, movements in the Chinese business cycle are key to understanding emerging markets. And if you just frame uh, what I've just said in terms of simply two dynamics, the movement of the dollar, a weaker dollar, and a stronger Chinese economy, if you get that cocktail, emerging markets will explode upwards. This is the, the best uh, environment by far. We are probably seeing that. One of the things that you are now seeing as evidence in China is that the Chinese central bank is beginning to increase easing through, let's say, rather unconventional mechanisms. Uh, in so far as they're not using their balance sheet, which is what they've always done historically. Uh, the balance sheet has become much more of an instrument for controlling uh, the yuan currency. What they're doing is they're basically focusing much more on directed lending, very much like the Japanese did in the 1980s uh, through window guidance. And what's happening in China is that the shadow banks, which for a long time were very heavily controlled by the authorities, in other words, to as part of the of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive, have now been released. And what you're seeing is a very strong acceleration in shadow bank lending. Now, shadow banks in China are not quite the same institution as we are familiar with in Europe or the US. They tend to be subsidiaries of the major high street banks, the, uh, the, the major commercial banks in China. And they may well sit on a different floor, but they're really part of the same institution. 
but they're very important for small to mid to medium-sized enterprise lending, uh, whereas the, the major state-owned banks tend to loan to state-owned industries. The shadow banks are much more instrumental in terms of the more entrepreneurial uh, areas of the Chinese economy. The very fact that they're accelerating their lending now at a rapid rate, uh, particularly since uh, the last six months, uh, is probably telling us that the Chinese economy is likely to accelerate itself uh, coming into 2021. And there is a lot more you know, potential in the Chinese economy for easing. And what's more, that will extend into the region. And one of the things that we look very closely at as an aside is to look at uh, the whole question about swap lines. And let's not focus purely on US dollar swap lines, because there's a much bigger raft of swap lines out there now, which is the Chinese uh, renminbi or yuan swap lines around the region. What is that there for? That's there because China is uh, very soon going to develop a trade credit market and start to denominate much more trade in yuan and away from dollars. And that's one of the themes one's got to think about in the next uh, you know, five to 10 years. On top of that, there is the development of the digital yuan as a peer-to-peer -peer instrument, uh, monetary instrument within the region. And that's likely to be another factor. You know, one of the factors as well, which may ultimately help to undermine the dollar, is the fact that in terms of uh, financial technology, China is actually significantly ahead of the US in this realm. Now, the second question that you, that you raised, which was the whole issue about sovereign debt uh, and about liquidity, let me just uh, say a few words about that. We think about this in terms of a debt liquidity spiral, and that spiral is fragile, and it's kind of out of control in a sense. And that fact that's out of control means central banks have to continually come in and paper over the cracks. And the more that they do this, the more they, they risk creating what we think of as monetary inflation or dislocations in markets. And one of the areas we think, what we think is likely happening in the next two to three years is a significant step up in the rate of inflation globally as that monetary inflation starts to come through. Now, we're talking, we think, of an order of a magnitude of 3 to 4% uh, consumer price inflation in the West, that sort of magnitude, not mega inflation, but certainly significant to worry the fixed income markets. Why is that likely to happen? Because we've, we've, we've moved into a world where liquidity is created by debt. In other words, the collateralization of debt, the more debt there is, uh, the more or the easier it is, is to collateralize and create liquidity. But then equally, uh, debt needs liquidity for refinancing. One of the things that uh, many people forget, and I think I would put central bankers sort of first in the, in, in the list of this, is that debt needs to be refinanced. Uh, you don't just issue debt once, you have to keep refinancing it. Modern financial systems are no longer capital raising mechanisms, they're capital refinancing mechanisms. And what you need to do is to continue to roll debt. The financial crises we've seen over the last decade or so, plus the last 20 years, let's say, have been all about refinancing crises. There hasn't been enough liquidity, essentially, to roll debt over. What debt needs to be refinanced is balance sheet capacity. And that balance sheet capacity is measured by liquidity. So we're in a situation now where there's a debt liquidity spiral. The more debt we have, and there are whopping great piles of debt, as we know, that debt will have to be refinanced. You need liquidity for that. And therefore, you need to generate liquidity. And that's what central banks are doing. The problem is the policy error they have made, the, the clear policy error, is to, is to uh, operate with a very low interest rate environment. 
if the Bank of England and other central banks are thinking about going to negative interest rates, which we uh, are assured they are, this is a, a, the policy of the, of the lunatic asylum. You don't want to do that because low interest rates encourage debt. You want to discourage debt. You want to go back to the bank shop you know, view of the 19th century. And if you lend, you lend as a monetary authority at high interest rates and against good collateral. Uh, that has not been the policy that central banks have operated for the last decade. They've been lending to anyone low interest rates, and that's not the right uh, policy. What that does is to create a big debt mountain, and it just you know, underscores the problems in the financial system. Those have been, uh, if you like, exaggerated even more by these uh, you know, rather crazy policies of austerity, which, put, uh, which forced the private sector to go more and more into debt because the public sector is moving away. Thankfully, the COVID crisis has actually stopped that. And what we're now seeing is a period where policymakers are enacting strong fiscal policy support. Uh, that will have to be financed by central banks. So we're in a situation where in 2021, there is likely to be another big increase in liquidity of the order of another 15% growth probably uh, next year, which will take liquidity, the pool of global liquidity, up to about 100 uh, $72 trillion, or there or thereabouts, which will make it twice world GDP. Now, thinking that 20 years ago, liquidity, global liquidity was only one, barely one times world GDP, you can see how the world has changed. Yes, that's absolutely fascinating. They're, they're just picking out from the many things that you've said, there are two things I'd like to raise to see whether you've got any additional comments on it. One is that I think, looking into the financial history books, this is the first era where almost every country in the world has been has been afflicted in the same negative way by circumstances which have increased the debt levels and um, exerted pressure on inflation and, and, um, and interest rates downwards. And I wonder whether you think that's going to make things easier to cope with more quickly than has been true in the past, where there have been regional or country by country disadvantages to deal with. Um, the other thing which is very interesting, because you've mentioned China and the Yuan a number of times in what you've said, is the extraordinarily, exceptionally positive display of economics in China over the last the last quarter and, and figures ending in October, where industrial production is up very nearly 7%, retail sales up between 4% and 3%, and the likelihood overall that it will go on growing, although commercial demand from overseas is obviously going to be waxing and waning rather than growing. And that balances in an odd way with uh, Japan, which also appears to be strong in many respects, but you may think is in a different boat and shouldn't be compared too closely to, to China. But in comparison with America's um, likely to decline, Europe and the UK's decline and so on, China is quite outstanding and Japan invites question marks. So I hope you don't mind my saying, is there anything more that you've got that you could tell us that on, on those two fronts? Yes, yeah, so let me just say a few words about uh, Asia and the world economy in 2021. This build-up of spending liquidity that we've seen this year is likely to lead to a significant boom in the world economy in 2021, way more than economists are currently predicting. And what you're seeing is not only a, a build-up of cash in households and corporations in the West, you're seeing China, as I alluded to, beginning to ramp up monetary growth very significantly, uh, particularly through the shadow banks as a lever of new lever of easing. And that will basically cause the world economy uh, to spike higher in 2021, uh, with an, in, probably an underlying inflation problem beginning to emerge as well, and shortages appearing, particularly in commodity markets. 
So all those factors, I think, are, are made more certain by this liquidity response. I think the question about China's long-term future and what it means to the region is interesting. I would offer sort of three comments on that. One is that Japan is very much now a subsidiary of the Chinese economy, de facto. Okay, Japanese companies are now uh, integrated very closely into Chinese supply chains, and the momentum or the cycle of the Japanese economy is increasingly a Chinese-led cycle, as is true of most of the region. One of the things that you've seen as a defining characteristic in the Asian financial markets in the last three or four years is the fact that currency stability has, has been remarkable. In other words, there seems to be a policy of deliberately targeting currencies to reduce volatility among peer units. Uh, in other words, there is an attempt to de facto create, if you like, an Asian dollar. That will have big implications in 2021 if the dollar, if the US dollar weakens and the Asians stay stable against the US unit because it will put huge upward pressure on the euro. And that's one of the factors that may well come out if inflation picks up investors will start to gravitate to a traditionally deflationary currency like the euro. I think on a longer term dimension about China, what you have to think about or what you put into context is that China is like the Soviet Union. Now, uh, the Chinese will not like that comparison. In fact, they will, they will bristle at that thought. But the fact is that the Chinese economy is operating very much like that. I, was a, you know, a, I studied at university centrally planned economies back uh, 30, 40 years ago. And I know a lot about how the Soviet Union worked. And essentially what uh, China is doing is really cop copying that model. Therefore, what I would say is my conclusions are that you will not see a financial crisis in China in the same way as you didn't really see one in the Soviet Union, because the liability side of banks' balance sheets are very, very secure. They're underwritten by the state. There's no question about funding difficulties. The second thing is that uh, if you're producing generally, let's say, less differentiated products, you keep growing for a long time until you don't. So in other words, the momentum of the economy can continue in the medium term for some considerable time, but then it derails. And uh, China is not going to be as anything like as strong 20 years from now as it is today. The fact is that China needs America much, much, much more than America needs China. Uh, and that's a point to remember. If you go back to 1980, and this is a, you know, almost a ridiculous analogy, but it was true at the time. Many commentators, many learned commentators were projecting that the Soviet Union in 1980 would outpace the US economy. It would be the dominant economy worldwide. 20 years later, the Soviet Union didn't even exist. Uh, think about that in the context of China. These 20-year jumps in economies tend to be radically different. And centrally planned or planned economies are just not flexible enough to cope with changing patterns of consumer demand. That's absolutely fascinating. But the bit that lingers in my mind right at the front of it is what you said earlier about China needing America far more than America needs China. But thank you very much. And um, forgive me for prompting your, your extending on those points, but it's very, very interesting to hear your views on those. Michael, what I wanted to say was you've allowed us to exhaust you by speaking extremely productively and very positively over the last period of time. So what I'd like to do, unless you've got anything to say to the contrary, is to thank you very much indeed, not only on the part of Independent Research Forum, but also much more importantly on the part of all the other researchers and the other investors who form the, the very, very valuable supportive cohorts um, on which it depends, because you've done a fantastic job and it's been wonderful to listen. Thank you very much indeed for that. 
Good, Jamie, thank you. It's been a great pleasure, great opportunity. Thank you.